So a couple weeks ago, I ran by Goodfellas Pizza downtown, and I stopped by to pick up some breadsticks for my wife. But on the way back to my car, I made a new friend. Some of you might recognize this fella here, and as you probably well know, I am a big Georgia Bulldogs fan, and so I made it clear my quick conversation with Coach Stoops of Kentucky that, that hey, I'm a big dogs fan, and so there's nothing I would love more than to see you beat the Florida Gators. And without missing a beat, Coach Stoops, he, he looked at me and said, hey, now that is something we can agree on. And, and, and you know, I'll just say, even though the result was a little bit different when Kentucky faced my Georgia Bulldogs last week, we have an upcoming game against Florida next week. And so can't we just all agree, like Coach Stoops, um, that, that it would be good to see those lousy, stinking gators go down again, right? I, I think that's something that we can all agree on. But, but listen, we're continuing our true identity series, and we're using the Apostle Paul's prison letter to the church at Ephesus as a springboard for looking at how God sees you and debunking some of the lies that we believe about ourselves, some of these, these perceptions that twist our understanding of who we are. And so today, we're going to unpack an area that affects every single one of us, guilt. Guilt. We're going to talk about guilt today. Last week, we talked about shame, and guilt is its close cousin. In fact, Chip Ingram, in his book, Discover Your True Self, which is one of the resources for this series, we encourage you to check it out. He, he writes these words. Shame and guilt go hand in hand, one feeding the other. They are partners of destruction, eroding our lives. And as we do with shame, most of us carry guilt around for years. Few emotions can distort our mirror and make us feel as dirty, ugly, unworthy, and unlovable as guilt does. And we all struggle with it. No exceptions. But in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul explains the root of our problem with guilt and more importantly, God's solution for it. And so spoiler alert, get this, the enemy is outmatched. The enemy is outmatched. The weapon of guilt formed against us drowns in the sea of grace that God has poured out on those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's good news. And that good news in the words of Coach Stoops, is, is something that we can all agree on, that, that we need some good news because we all, we all struggle with guilt and we need to be reminded that, that God's grace trumps guilt. You see, in short, grace is God's antidote to guilt. Grace is God's antidote to guilt. If guilt is a disease, then grace is the remedy. If guilt is the prognosis, then grace is the prescription. You see, grace is God's antidote to guilt. That's what overcomes our guilt. And Paul not only knew that, he experienced it. He had this radical transformation, and Jesus removed his guilt. He removed his sin, and he covered him in grace. And, and that grace that Paul experienced, it shows up and shows out in his writings to the early church, and especially in this book that, that we call um, a letter to the church at Ephesus. And so, so we call this Ephesians. And in fact, it's this beautiful work, this beautiful um, just uh, collaboration of, of ideas of what, 
what the church is meant to be and what the body of Christ truly is. In fact, the poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge called the book of Ephesians the divinest composition of man. I mean, what, what incredible accolades, right? The divinest composition of man. It's a book that is chock full of prayer and it's bursting with song as Paul kind of, kind of raises the sights far above his own circumstances to bigger cosmic issues of purpose. In fact, he declares that, that this pursuit of unity between all things in heaven and on the earth under the lordship of Christ is our collective purpose, that, that we're to be unified in Christ. And that's basically what Ephesians is all about. And especially the passage we'll be unpacking today from the first nine verses of chapter two. So if you have your Bible or if you're tracking along on version, get to Ephesians chapter two, these first nine verses. And as I read these, I, I, I want you to listen to how Paul describes our common problem with sin, this commonality that we all share with sin, but hold out for the hope that's available. Let's read this, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning verse 1. He starts off and says, as for you, which I want to pause here for a moment because we have to know who he's talking about. You know, Paul, he's this Jew who is now following Jesus, but he's writing to new believers. He's writing to people who are new in the faith, these new Christians who were all Gentiles, who were not Jews. And so Paul is addressing these people, and Paul, we've talked about this before, he's known to use the plural form of you in his writing. In fact, in our Ephesians study on Wednesday nights, my friend and Bible teacher Brad Haggard, he really did a deep dive into this, but essentially, when he says you in this plural form, right, in Kentucky, we pronounce that as y'all, right? So that's what he's saying. He says, y'all, as for y'all, all you guys, right? As for y'all, y'all were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which y'all used to live when y'all followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Okay, so, so it says, hey, all of, of you guys, all of y'all, now y'all were dead in your transgressions and sin. Okay, so it kind of paints this very bleak and grim picture of the reality of sin and the weight of it. And then he continues, verse 3. Now, all of us, and now us, he makes this distinction, us are the believers, people who are, who are following Jesus, who know Christ as Lord and Savior. But, but I, want, I want to point out, Paul makes this distinction only in order to level the playing field for unity. Check this out. It continues, so all of us also lived among them at one time. He said, we were all just like that, just like the people who were jacked up, we were jacked up too. He says, we were like that at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we, again, he's, he's using this inclusive language. He says, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Because all of us, and we've missed the mark, we all deserve God's wrath. And then verse four, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So this is the turning point, right? Like this is the gospel message right here. It says, you were dead in your sin and transgressions, but 
but Jesus showed up and it's by grace that you have been saved. Verse six, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. He says he's lifted you up to put on display his incomparable riches of grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And then verse eight, I love this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You see, Paul makes this distinction to say, hey, all of us are in need of this Savior, and there's nothing that we can do, so, so nobody can boast about it. It's a free gift that God extends through Jesus. You know, G.K. Chesterton, the British journalist, author, and theological thinker who had a huge impact on C.S. Lewis, many of us know very well, he was once asked, what is wrong with the world? Very simple question, right? But like, I mean, huge ramifications. So what is wrong with the world? And his answer was profound. GK simply said, I am. I am. You see, not the government, not advancing weapon technology, not Germany's new political star at the time named Hitler, but himself. In other words, everyone is. The, the problems of the world begin in the human heart, and there are all kinds of theological terms used to describe this, terms like total depravity and moral inability, and, and as many terms as there are, there's exponentially more theological debates and, and discussions about what all these means and, and what is true and what is actually real, what's from God, but, but, but in short, here's the idea that it's not that we're all as bad as we could be, but that we all suffer from the effects of sin that, that infect every human heart. And so, so here's the reality, and Paul breaks this down very clearly, saying like all of us have sinned. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone, all of us have sinned. And parents, teachers, you get this, right? Like with new little kids, you don't have to teach them to be selfish, like, like they just know by default that they get this, this self-serving sin that is deeply rooted inside. But here's what happens. In a culture obsessed with consulting Google and two-day shipping, we're, we're in the market for quick fix self-improvement, not a resurrection, like, like not a transformation. Like, like we're, we're in the market for like whatever I need to do to just like, to just uh, extend, buy me some time and push all the real issues down the road. If I can just roll it back, then, then sign me up for that when we actually need resurrection. We need to be made new again. And the reality is guilt is kind of like having this debilitating black mold decaying our walls and our home and we're looking at paint colors. Right, like, like we, we need to deal with the actual issue. It's like we're taking aspirin when we need an amputation, right? And, and that's the significance. That's the weight, the reality of guilt, and we can't escape it. Like we've all fallen short. We're all in need of forgiveness. We're all in need of saving. But the truth is, 
until we realize that smoke is billowing out of our windows and and out of our doors and our house is on fire, we'll be aggravated that firefighters keep banging on our doors, right? Because until you accept your need to be saved, you won't accept the Savior. Like until you realize that you actually do have sin, this debilitating, growing sin in your life, until you realize your need for saving, you won't accept the Savior. And guilt is oftentimes a barrier, if not the barrier. But guilt's complicated, isn't it? Because it doesn't always present as critical. If it did, if it showed up and it was like, oh my gosh, this guilt is so big, I have to deal with it. But it, it doesn't always do that. Sometimes, sure, but, but usually it's, it's just nagging, it's subtle. You know, one psychologist called guilt the most destructive of all emotions. Because, yeah, while it can be weighty and crippling, it's usually, it's usually not. It shows up in the form of, um, of just nagging, Right? Like a box of chocolates, guilt comes in a variety pack. Right? We've experienced this, all different kinds of guilt, yet instead of like cherries or walnuts or pecans, like in this box of chocolates, guilt is a poison disguised as a mood swing. And you don't, you don't always know what it's going to do to you. You don't always know because it shows up, you're like, well, I could probably handle this. I could kind of suppress it. But, but no, it's this poison. And it's way more significant than, than just an emotion. I mean, think for just a moment about the different variants of guilt that, that you or people that you know have experienced. And this list is not exhaustive by any means, but here are just a few impacts of guilt. Like, of course, we've all felt the guilt for doing something wrong, right? We, we did something wrong, we felt the guilt, but when not dealt with, guilt lingers and it grows and it robs us of joy. Guilt robs joy. Like my friend in college who felt guilty for receiving a diploma he knew he didn't earn because he cheated his way through test after test and course after course. So instead of it being like this trophy that he displays on the wall of his office, it's now just this framed piece of paper that serves as a reminder of his shortcomings, right? Like, like he did something wrong and he feels the guilt of that and he can't let it go. Or, or like, what about the feelings of guilt you get when something good happens to you? I think about this, guilt intercepts gratitude. So it not only robs joy, but it can intercept gratitude like, like a woman who feels guilty for, for getting pregnant with maybe her second, her third healthy child when, when maybe her sister or her best friend struggles with infertility, right? Like I, how, how dividing can that feel? And she can feel guilty even though she didn't do anything wrong. That's a hard place to be. Or, or what about the guilt you feel for not doing all you feel you could have to maybe help someone? Guilt fogs memories, It's kind of like the first responder who can't shake the tragic death from an accident he responded to, though he made the best snap decisions with the resources and knowledge available at the time. He did what he thought was best, yet he still carries the guilt that he could have done more. Right? So guilt shows up 
in all these different ways. And it's such a tricky, elusive player in the human experience. And while it rarely manifests itself as the problem, its roots supply the tree that grows harmful symptoms. Right, like, like my friend whose guilt of past setbacks in college now fuels indifference about his future, leading him to cut corners in business like he did in school. It's all I've ever known, and he just lives in this vicious cycle of guilt. Or, or like the pregnant woman I mentioned whose, whose guilt, if left unchecked, can entice her to be more deceiving and distant in relationships that were once open and honest. Right? Or, or like the fireman whose guilt of not doing all he felt he could, it can drive him to be apathetic and numb, leading him to potentially just try to drink his pain away. Again, guilt is complicated. It's destructive, it's demanding, it's sometimes hard to identify and even harder to control. I'd say that guilt is like the kudzu of toxicity. It just has this way of growing and growing and growing. And, and that's why removing guilt is at the heart of the gospel. Jesus understands that, and he wants to do something about it. And, and so for just a moment, let's break down kind of these different types of guilt, these things that Jesus wants to take away from you. See, the literal definition of guilt is this, that guilt is the state of having committed an offense. Like it's the opposite of innocence. It's missing the mark or a standard or ideal. Right, like you, you completely miss the mark, you mess up, you are guilty. That's the literal definition. You mess up, you are guilty. But then there's a psychological definition. It's just that guilt is an emotional response to the perception that we have broken a prohibition or fallen short of a standard. Thus, guilt can be both a fact and a feeling, and the two are not necessarily related. We, we have to see the difference here, that, that you can feel free of guilt and be very guilty. Like sociopaths would fit that bill. Though they feel no remorse or guilt whatsoever, they are certainly guilty before God and the law. But on a, a far smaller scale, some of us may violate the law of the land, think like speed limits, or the rules of an organization like stealing office supplies or sneaking candy into a movie theater, and we feel no guilt at all because we don't agree with the rules or we think that our offenses are trivial. And so we've decided to not feel guilty even though we've done something that's wrong. But here's the point. You don't have to feel guilty to be guilty. By contrast, you can feel very guilty and not be guilty at all. And that's called false guilt. You see, for example, have you ever felt guilty for just sitting down and relaxing. I know the type A's and the Enneagram 3's, they know what I'm talking about, but, but, but then there's this far more serious false guilt, like the way a victim of abuse may feel guilty for something that someone else did to them. Like they didn't do anything wrong, but they, they, they suffer from this lingering guilt and they somehow feel responsible. And that's, that's a tragic psychological lie. That in a crowd of this size who's tuning in right now, many, many of us have likely struggled with this false guilt that plays in this horrible trick in our mind. But to be clear, though guilt is complicated, the theological meaning of guilt focuses on absolutes, not feelings or perceptions. 
You see, God is holy and perfect, and to have a relationship with him, we must be holy and perfect too. But we aren't, right? And remember, all have sin, and so, so we have this problem, and, and all of us bear the guilt of our sin that we deserve, but when we come into relationship with Jesus, he takes our sin on himself. And we receive his forgiveness. We receive his righteousness and it is placed on us. And so in other words, when we are in Christ, God no longer sees our sin. He sees his son. There's this trade-off that, that we no longer suffer the ramifications of the guilt that we deserve. No, no, no. We receive this free grace gift that just overwhelms you know, I want you to think of yourself like um, maybe this past summer, but kind of wading in the pool with this beach ball. Like you've got this beach ball, and if you're anything like me or, or my kids, what we like to do, we like to, push, we like to push this ball under the water, right? And so, so you hold this ball under water, and, um, and then it won't take very long. It's kind of hard. It's kind of a struggle, but the ball's not very big, so you kind of hold it under. But then eventually, if you lose... If you lose grip on it, it comes shooting up out of the water, right? Now, I want you to imagine that, that this ball, it represents the guilt that you've been actively avoiding and suppressing. Like you've been trying to push this down under the water. And, and what happens is as long as you can hold it, as long as you can just push it down, maybe as far as you can, and you kind of get a handle on it, you feel like you do, then it looks like the surface is all calm. And serene. It looks like everything is kind of under control. But, but again, what happens when it starts to shoot up and it pops up, then it, it kind of disrupts everything, right? And so what we do, when it, when it pops up, we, like, well, we have to push it down further and further, right? And so we push our guilt down. But what happens, it kind of keeps us uh, um, like isolated. We can't move around like we once did. We're, we're rendered um, more helpless than we once were. And so we're, we're trying so hard to, to control this guilt and we push it down. And then what happens is it can shoot back up even bigger. And the, the destruction and, 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 um, and like all, of, all of what it brings now, it feels like it has grown because you haven't been dealing with it. And so you, again, you try to push it down and down and, 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 and eventually you're so tired and what you what you have to realize is that, that you can't just suppress the guilt forever. You, you can't. What you have to do is, is figure out how, how to let it rise to the top without it being so disruptive and, and then get to a place where you can eventually let it go. And, and what happens is, is once you, you're able to let this go, that, that Jesus, Jesus actually removes it. He actually takes it away completely. You know, Romans 8, 1 says that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who know Jesus. That he takes away our sin. He takes away our guilt. The guilt that we have for the decisions that we've made, he wipes it completely away. The beach ball is no longer ours to suppress. And why is that? Or maybe a better question, how is that? Well, let me reread the second half of that passage from Ephesians. Because of his great love for us, that's the why, his love. 
Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And, and then here's the how. Like here's, here's what he actually did. Verse 6, here's how. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. I mean, think about what's happening here. Like the guilt that you deserve for the sin that you are guilty of, whether you feel guilty or not, whether you perceive your sin to be great or not, all of that guilt, all of your baggage, all of the sin that you have, man, God, God didn't leave you in it to drown with it. No, no, no. He, he removed it and he rescued you with the righteousness of his son. In verse 7, in order that, this is why he did it, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Again, verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. That God offers to take away your guilt and replace it with grace. The gift of God is the forgiveness of sin through his son, Jesus. And in that, the removal of guilt. That's called grace. And we're talking about felt guilt, perceived guilt, absolute guilt, deserved guilt, all guilt removed. You know, Chip Ingram puts it like this. When it comes to guilt, God does not help those who help themselves. He helps those who receive his help by faith. That, that, that all we have to do is let go and reach out. And God is there to help. That's the reason that no one can boast about salvation. Grace is the free, unmerited love of God that put Jesus on the cross to pay for our sins. And when Jesus had fully taken on the wrath of our sin and guilt, he took your condemnation with him to the grave. It's like he took the beach ball to the grave. And when he came resurrecting up out of it, he left your guilt and sin there to die. And he came back and he raises you to new life as well. And, and so I want to offer a few simple thoughts on ways to handle guilt. And listen, I'm no expert. I'm just a fellow traveler kind of sharing notes. Not an expert, just have a little bit of experience. And so when it comes to handling guilt, number one, we have to identify guilt. We have to do a little bit of soul search. We have to identify guilt and where it's coming from. So how do you do that? Well, you, you can usually trace the symptoms back to the source. So look for anger and frustration and isolation and deception. And you follow that back and say, what, what has led me to that place? Likely, likely guilt. And then determine if your guilt is absolute, meaning is it from something that you are actually guilty of or is it perceived guilt? In other words, is this your beach ball or not? And so once we've identified our guilt, then we seek forgiveness. Notice I said seek, which is a verb. That's an action word. It means to search for or to attempt to find. And so we have to do that. And when you seek forgiveness from God, first and foremost, be ready to receive 
his grace. It's kind of like standing at one of those little water parks under those giant buckets of water, right? And when that thing tips, man, you are going to be lavished with water in the same way God pours out his grace. So be ready when you seek forgiveness from God, be ready to receive it because he's already paid for your forgiveness. It's free and it's available and it's bottomless. It's extravagant. And and then also, once you've sought forgiveness from God, seek forgiveness from others that you've wronged. And know this, that um, that when we, when we do this, we have, to, uh, we have to understand that this is a daunting task because, because you have to be patient with the other person's timeline. See, what I've realized is that um, I may be ready to receive their forgiveness, but they may not be ready yet to extend it. And that's out of my control. But just know this, that this whole concept of, of, um, of seeking forgiveness, if you're a Christ follower, this This is at the heart of repentance, like turning away from sin and back to Jesus. So the guilt that a Christ follower feels is actually conviction. And though it expresses itself with similar emotions, unlike condemnation, conviction has the sole purpose of restoration and reconnection with the Lord. So so don't miss this. Don't miss this because Christ followers will think like I'm suffering from all this guilt when conviction requires Action, think about it like this. Conviction leads to movement. It leads to action, whereas guilt can drive us to suppression, where we try not to deal with it or we deal with it in unhealthy ways. And so so we act on those emotions by handing it over to Jesus and seeking forgiveness. And so once we've identified our guilt and we've sought forgiveness, release the burden. Like, like this, is the, this is the part, it's a hard part, but it, it's when you actually just let go of the beach ball. Like it's no longer yours to deal with. You release the burden. This is hard to do, to actually rest assured in grace. It's hard to do. But I see people all the time who are in Christ and they're still holding on. They're white knuckling their guilt. And I want to just like look at them and shake them and just say like, why are you trying to carry what Jesus is trying to bury? Right? Like he wants to take your burdens, he wants to take your sin and take your shame and your guilt and, and, and remove it completely. And you're still trying to hold on to it. And, and Jesus says, Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, let me take that. I've already paid for it. It's rightfully mine. Let me remove it from you. And so take him up on that offer and release the burden. And finally, once you've worked the simple approach with dealing with guilt, repeat. Do it again. And do it again and again because it's not just that, that all fell short of the glory of God, it's that, that all fall short of the glory of God because on this walk with Jesus, no matter how in step we are, we all continue to stumble from time to time over different temptations or obstacles. And when we do, guilt surfaces again. And we're faced with the choice, will I foolishly try to suppress this guilt or will I identify what it is? Will I seek forgiveness where I need and will I turn that burden over to the one who can truly handle it? Because your identity, I mean, your true identity is not found in the mistakes you need forgiveness for. It's found in the righteousness of the one who forgives. 
that when God looks at you, when you're in Christ, he no longer sees your sin. He sees his son. And I think that this Jesus approach of grace over guilt is something that we can all agree on. So swim in his grace, this amazing grace that is God's antidote to guilt. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the unmerited grace you lavish on us. God, I thank you that that grace is your antidote to guilt, that it's the remedy. And so today, Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. Search our hearts, weed out guilt that we've been pacifying for far too long. Forgive us of the marks we've missed and move us to surrender our burdens to you. Father, may we not try to undo what Jesus has already done, but rather realize that our identity is not guilt-driven, but grace-driven. And Jesus, thank you for sharing your righteousness with us. May we strive to carry it well as we lay down our guilt. Father, empower us with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name.